A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Quick note before we start the show. I've been telling you how easy it is, that it's never been easier to support CanadaLand. Maybe it's not easy enough. I was talking to my neighbor... From a considerable physical distance, I, I promise. And and he told me that he did what I asked to do. He went into the episode notes and was looking for the link, and he just couldn't find it. And I promised him that we would conduct a large-scale survey of the listenership to find out whether or not he has uh, done me a great service and alerted me to a usability issue, or if uh, there's just something uniquely special about his um, inability to do this quickly. So try it out. Go into the episode notes. Look for the link. Uh, support us for $5 a month Canadian. Let me know if you can find that easily or not. And, you know, you don't have to actually go through and, you know, sign up to pay us 5 bucks Canadian a month, but uh, it'd be great if you did. Uh, or you can go to canadalandshow.com slash join. And that I know is quite easy and you will very quickly get an ad-free feed of Canada Land podcasts. We really do uh, need your support. We are uh, fighting the good fight to keep things on track here and to preserve every job at this organization. So if you are in a position to help us, uh, please do. Thank you. Tim Bousquet. Editor of the Halifax Examiner, joining me from Halifax. Hey, Jesse. Tim, today we're going to talk about when very bad news breaks in rural Canada while the whole country is under lockdown. And we are going to talk about Trudeau's plans to intubate legacy media. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Leah Scharzer. Jake Blyberg, Tim Roots, Alexia Wright, Dougal Graham, Kate Chappelle, Mike Menzel, and Matt Zignis. 
I am a public servant and actor from Gatineau, Quebec. I support Canada Land because in a world of false information, misinformation, too much information, it's nice to have people who are willing to try to cut through it all, tell the truth as they see it, uh, and to hold people to account when they have not previously been held to account. I appreciate that Jesse is willing to admit when he's wrong and try to learn from any past mistakes and to drive an organization that is trying to do as much good as it can in this world. Keep it up. So, Tim, in in, uh, starting our conversation about the worst mass shooting in Canadian history, you know, I feel like just tonally it's so odd and... I guess, awkward when we're in a moment of grieving and, you know, certainly grieving for law enforcement who lost uh, an RCMP officer and just a recognition that these uh, Mounties put their lives on the line for us to take a critical eye towards them can feel uncomfortable. But that is the job. I think that's the job of the media after any kind of uh, meaningful news story involving police actions. And um, from my perspective as a media critic, it feels like in this instance, the cops were the source of the information. You know, it's such a strange circumstance. Well, they were the source of bad information or, or no information. And there wasn't anyone to backfill into that. Yeah. I mean, the way it's supposed to work is that we are on the scene questioning them. We are hopefully on the scene uh, witnessing things and reporting live from, you know, I mean, my first question is this took place, this mass shooting took place over the course of like over 12 hours. To your knowledge from your base in Nova Scotia, were any reporters on the scene reporting? Not that I can verify at all. Uh, Not that I'm aware of. This scene started at at around 11 o'clock on Saturday night. There were multiple calls out to this small town of Portapique on the minus basin there. And, um, you know, structure fires and victims with gunshot wounds, multiple. Um, but uh, evidently no reporter was listening to the first responders uh, broadcast at, at that time of night. Um, the RCMP did issue a tweet telling people in that area to remain in their homes, but uh, no further information than that. And um, we heard nothing until 8.30 the next morning. It was very frustrating and difficult as this played out to figure out what the hell was going on. And I feel like it's still very difficult for people to get any kind of a timeline of a narrative. That's right. Let me be clear about this. The police are being obtuse. The RCMP um, are not being transparent. They are sending out conflicting and incomplete messaging, even two days, three days after the event now. You know, I, I posted an article last night explaining that their press releases to media uh, and to the public um, essentially contain no no information whatsoever. This was a 12-hour crime scene. And the RCMP have yet to tell us where they were and when they were in that crime scene. There's a lot that I want to dig into you with, with you here. I mean, the RCMP have a lot of questions to answer about their own actions. Why, you know, today the media is starting to get a bit critical in the early days, uh, in the early hours. It was about reverence for law enforcement and, and mourning and grieving. But you kind of have to move fast with a critical lens because, you know, 
it's in those early moments when stories get straightened out. That's when you can kind of figure out what happened. You can't kind of like just be respectful and wait to ask tough questions. So we're starting to ask, why did you use Twitter when you could have reached everybody with an emergency alert? And and that could have saved lives. We're asking questions, you know, this played out over the course of 12 hours, 16 crime scenes, uh, questions about the response. And then I have questions about how the murderer was uh, ultimately shot and killed by police. Yeah. But still just trying to figure out what happened here. This is an unprecedented reporting situation. It would have been difficult at the best of times. This is a rural remote area. This uh, took place over a lot of distance covered. It would have been tough to get reporters on the scene. But then during the global pandemic, we're getting information from the police and they are an interested party in this. They're going to have a lot to answer for as to what happened. I want to talk about one of the most detailed accounts that I read Tim, and that came from Joe Warmington. Yeah, um, what he did, I, he basically re-reported what a someone who purported to be a, a cop uh, posted on, on Reddit. Now, we don't know if Warmington got that from Reddit or if he got that from that cop. He cited police sources, multiple. Joe Warmington of the Toronto Sun, not reporting from Nova Scotia, reporting from here in Toronto, he is known as a, you know, a cops reporter. And he is somebody who does break stories because he has sources uh, in law enforcement. But also I think, you know, you can take this for what it's worth, but my opinion of Joe Warmington is that he can be counted on to basically present what police tell him, sometimes not willing to put their names to it, uh, anonymous police sources without much verification or any kind of uh, criticism or scrutiny. And that's something that raises an eyebrow for me because in the early hours when the police are not giving many details officially on the record, if they are, whether it's through a Reddit post or directly to Joe Warmington, able to get their version of the story into the public record, that might be consequential afterwards. And, and I'm going to run through his account here and the stuff that he had that nobody else had. So what Warmington reported and uh, was picked up throughout Post Media Papers was at least some kind of a, of a linear narrative here that uh, Wartman, the killer, had been planning this. It was premeditated and that, and this is some information that nobody else had reported, the first two dead are believed to be Wartman's ex-wife or girlfriend and her new boyfriend. He had further details that after killing a Mountie, Wartman took her gun, burned his own car and took her car, took the actual Mountie's uh, squad car. Uh, patrol car. So far as we know, that's incorrect. Well, that I want to return to that because that draws some skepticism on the whole account. Because uh, the next thing that Warmington had that nobody else had is pretty important. He said that at the time that Wartman was finally taken down by the police, he had the Mounties gun out. He had Stevenson's gun out. Now, that is going to be a very important detail that I think, you know, police are going to want whether or not he had a gun out at the time that he was uh, killed and, and hit with 10 rounds or whether the police executed him, I take no position. I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't mind either way, but we do need to know what happened. So if police are feeding this information to Warmington and, you know, who was there to contradict that or to verify that or what, when we know that Warmington's account you know, is either wrong or dubious because the police were asked, uh, RCMP spokesperson Chris Leather was asked if the shooter ever was driving an actual police vehicle. And he said no. He said no. He said no. So uh, the police are contradicting at least one detail in Warmington's account. Uh, there's lots of that narrative that's wrong. Or, You know, I'm, I'm a little bit frustrated here, Jesse, because uh, I have a lot of information, but I'm trying to be as meticulous as possible on it and get two sources uh, for verification of any one point. 
But much of what you just read us from Worthington contradicts the narrative that I'm piecing together. And, you know, I, I can't tell you here's what I know because I, I haven't had that second verification on some of these parts yet. But uh, that entire narrative, um, obviously, we know that uh, Wartman did uh, pre-plan this, so that's correct. But that you don't need to be a genius to figure that out. Um, everything after that, I have problems with. You know, it's with some hesitation that we even repeat that narrative. But of course, this is being reported by the largest newspaper chain in Canada. And, and on this media criticism show, it does no good to ignore that. But anyone who heard that and, you know, please take the message that like, I am very skeptical about how that account was reached. And I'm, I worry that that was fed by cops for the benefit of the cops. So, you know, I appreciate your hesitancy to bring us a counter narrative, Tim, before you can verify it. But I think I think we need to be patient and diligent before we arrive at any conclusions and I just kind of feel frustrated as well that we're at the mercy of like who was there but police. And so we are incredibly, you know, this is what happens in a situation where the police are in, in a very powerful position to write their own narrative. They're, they, you know, we're days into this and they're not really openly answering the media's questions. Uh, I know that that's been frustrating for you. And I know that you were able, Tim, to find out something talking about contradictory accounts the police were asked if he had a criminal record and they said no. And then you found out that he'd been convicted of assault, Wartman, the, the gunman. Yeah. And there's been uh, other outlets have reported on this since then. But, uh, yeah, back in 2002, he assaulted a 15 year old and there's a conviction sitting at the courthouse. The RCMP wrote their own Q&A, so it wasn't a press conference. They said, here's a question and here's an answer. And the question was, does he have a criminal record? And they say, no, that's their answer. Technically true, because he was sentenced to uh, nine months probation, and then the record was cleared, vacated. So he did not have a criminal record. But obviously, when a mass murderer has an assault conviction in their past, that's of public interest and something the public should know. And yet the RCMP crafted this Q&A in such a way as to obscure that very important fact. I was unaware that that's how they presented the information. I thought that they had actually been asked that question and then answered it kind of in bad faith. But it was a question that they themselves constructed and then answered on their own. That's correct. That's I mean, this is a bad situation. This is not how it is supposed to play out, Tim. Like, right. right. So they had a, a press conference on Monday uh, afternoon. I, I went and uh, they were not forthcoming with a lot of information. And then. On Tuesday, rather than have another press conference, um, they just issued this statement with an attached Q&A. And again, they wrote the questions and they wrote the answers. It was not reporters asking them questions. Can you talk to me a little bit? I mean, there's a deference in the early media reports. And then there's just wrong stuff like Global News. Again, reporters from like, uh, you know, different parts of the country trying to piece this together. Mercedes Stevenson and Alexander Kwan writing for Global News. They had an early version of their draft saying that Wartman was shot and killed after being taken into police custody. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it was very, it was very confusing because... Everyone was was relying on this damn RCMP Twitter account. That was it. The RCMP did not issue uh, press releases. They weren't contacting reporters. You know, we were just relying on this Twitter feed. And the Twitter feed said he was in custody. And then another tweet said he was dead. 
So if you were trying to make sense of that, it was first he was in custody and secondly, he was killed. We still don't have clarification of what actually happened. We don't. And what Global News did was, uh, you know, I could see how they maybe made that mistake based on a linear like timeline based just on that Twitter account. And then later that's drawn into question and they remove that from the story. They disappeared that line of copy, but they issued no clarification or correction. And when I challenged Mercedes Stevenson, other people did. And she offered this sort of partial explanation where she said, well, custody was the term police used. In other cases where the suspect was mortally wounded or dead, it doesn't mean he was killed after being taken into custody. It doesn't mean he was killed after being taken into custody, but the line that she reported was he was shot and killed by police after being taken into custody. Yeah. So yeah. there's this kind of like reluctance to just admit, like, look, we were confused and we made an error. That's why we correct things. And then into that void, a lot of conjecture or conspiracy can fall. And some of it is just like legitimate questions like, well, well. Was he killed after they took him? Like, was he shot before, then taken into custody, and then he died? Or was this just an error, and he was shot and killed, and then, yeah. you know? You know, Jesse, that's bad, but it's not even the least of I mean, it's, it's there's worse. So Sunday, uh, late Sunday afternoon, e evening, into the evening, the RCMP had a press conference. And remember, this is... um Probably 20 hours after the event started, it was seven or eight hours after Wortman was killed, and they have this press conference. Nobody really knows what had happened. They lead off uh, talking about their officer who had been killed. It's 10 minutes into the press conference before CBC reporters ask, was anyone else killed? And they say, oh, yeah, there's 10 victims. It was 10 minutes into the press conference, and they only related to the public that over 10 people had been killed to a reporter's question. Yeah, it wasn't offered. It was it had to be asked. My God. Yeah. So this whole event to this, I'm speaking to you at about noon, my time on on Wednesday. And to this moment, all the framing coming from the RCMP starts with their officer being killed. Now, understandable. It's one of their own. Uh, but they have been reluctant all along to talk about who else was killed. And at that point, at least 10 people were known by them to be, have been killed. And they didn't even lead with that. And through this 12-hour course, they, they knew as early as Saturday night that there were at least, it looks like, five or six victims that they knew about in Puerto Peak. And they never released that to the public. I tell you, I woke up on Sunday and I saw this RCMP tweet about um, a shooting in Puerto Peak. And, you know, we all know that domestic violence is a horrible thing um, and not to downplay it. But I, I thought, oh, God, here's another one of these guys that that, uh, you know, kills the ex and, and himself and maybe some kids and, you know, this asshole. And I thought that was the end of it. But they had information Saturday night and certainly as early as 9.30 Sunday morning that there was a mass murderer on the loose and there were at least a dozen victims and they were not telling the public about it. I think this is just starting the reckoning from this. I just hope that all of the information that we were unable to press for in those early hours will be obtainable. Like I, Every hour that goes by is more time for narratives to sort of solidify. And meanwhile, while this is playing out, Tim, and we're struggling to get facts, 
the Prime Minister of Canada is telling us what to focus on and what not to focus on. I want to ask the media to avoid mentioning the name and showing the picture of the person involved. Do not give him the gift of infamy. Let us instead focus all our intention and attention on the lives we lost and the families and friends who grieve. He has asked us to focus all of our attention on the victims and not the killer. Well, we can't know what happened. I understand the argument for not using his name or photograph. Yeah. And opinions can differ on that. I think that we need to give people information. And, and if you don't, lies and rumors and conspiracy theories take root. But I understand you don't want copycats and you don't want to glorify people and you don't want to make it a practical reality that you can get, you know, uh, post-death fame by, by killing a bunch of people. But we should be focusing all of our attention on the victims. And like, what, what is he talking about? Yeah. Um, my thought on that is I come from the old school of, you know, we are reporters. We're supposed to put information out there. But I found that as I started reporting on this, I, I came around. I, I did not put Wartman's name out, and I, I still haven't, actually. Um, it's not because I'm not researching him. Our team is... We're doing nothing else but researching every aspect of this this mass murder. Um, and we certainly have his history, and I, I published his court record. But this is going to take a lot of work to tell the story about this mass murder. It's not that I'm not going to tell it. I certainly am. And when I do, of course, I'll use his name. But it needed to, I, I felt it needed to be a more reflective piece and a, and a better research piece and not simply here's who this guy is. So I don't know. I mean, I think that nobody wants to. I know that there's a journalist at the Globe and Mail who is feeling tremendous regret now for just this very dependable, terrible trope that always comes up in a tweet. The Globe and Mail had Nova Scotia mass shooter was a denturist with a passion for policing you know, which sounds like a dating profile, you know, that early question of who was he? And it seems to always fall along lines of he's demonized if he's not white. And if he's white, it's like, That's right. he was kind That's of gentle. Right. He, he he had lots of nice hobbies and you actually get these little you know bios and profiles. The Globe and Mail walked that back. Uh, they apologized. And the person responsible for it, I think is feeling awful about that. Um, I don't mean to dump on somebody for making a mistake, but it's not a typo. Like you have to ask yourself, well, why did you choose? It was, you know, ultimately they replaced it with, he had an obsession with policing, which I think has connotations of like dark malevolent obsession versus a passion. I have a passion for watercolors. You know, why did you go with that language? What was the unconscious bias that led you to that? So I, I respect your hesitancy to just like jump into, you know, tell me everything we can uh, find about this wonderful shooter. But we also do want to know what the hell happened. And I'm curious your thoughts on a media source that we don't talk about that often. And it's a complicated story of two Franks. There's there's Frank Magazine Ottawa and then there's Frank Atlantic. There's like Halifax Frank Magazine. And they had this story, what, in February that was yeah. kind of remarkable for its banality. And it was fed to them by Wartman. He seems to be the source for this this story that ran in Frank. Yeah. Can you summarize that for us? Well, uh, basically, uh, he had a dispute over over a, a parking lot next to his business, uh, which is actually right down the hill from my house. It's about six, seven blocks from from my house. Uh, he has this giant uh, teeth on the side of his building because uh, he's a dentist and and. There's um, 
a parking lot next to it. And there was, you know, he's been very, uh, territorial about his parking lot and so there was a police call over this and and he somehow got this into uh frank magazine and i in a weird way he's promoting his business the cops like you know they parked in his property he chained them up he had some confrontation later he got a speeding ticket was it related or not like it was i was like why is this a news story and it was obvious that he had given this to frank and uh, you know but, you know, I guess it does establish something of relevance of his conflict with police to, to, to go along with his uh, obsession with policing. I also noted that Frank were the ones asking the cops the question about whether or not he had driven a police cruiser. I look at both Franks as organizations that have a pretty strong record of breaking news first and getting a lot of things right, though they often report it in a way that's kind of gross and filled with uh, kind of weird language and misogynistic language, but they do break a lot of stories. And, you know, if you don't verify things completely, you can, you can act a lot quicker than the rest of the media. But I think credit where it's due for not falling into line with the cops and for pushing back on the cops and for having aspects of this that others don't. Maybe you have feelings about Frank Atlantic or more context than I do. Yeah, it, it has an interesting history here. It, the the Frank name actually started in Halifax. Uh, David Bentley started it. Um, who he went on to start the the Daily News, and now he runs AllNovaScotia dot com. Uh-huh. Um, and it was started as sort of a um, a British tabloid type publication. And at its best, and there have been very good years for Frank. Um, it was an in your face to uh, the powers that be, you know, the wealthy and the politicians, basically a gossip rag about them in the British style. But there was a, a need for that here in, in Nova Scotia. Um, I mean, God bless. Like, uh, I, you know, it's gone through several ownership changes, though. Um, and now it's taken that in your face attitude and no one's sacred. Um punching up uh, attitude and flipped it on its head. And now it's punching down, attacking unions, attacking people of color, uh-huh. um, that that sort of thing. Yeah, I, there's some episode somewhere in Canada Land's future looking at this and then the split between the two Franks. But uh, it was interesting to see them on the radar, you know, entering information into a record that was desperately needed in this. Well, you know, it's difficult to have press conferences now, right? So the RCMP had a, a press conference on Monday. Uh, I went and there was uh, the CP reporter um, and a couple of others and Andrew uh, from Frank showed up as well. Uh, so we were only allowed to go to a microphone in order to keep our six feet distance. We were only allowed to go one at a time to a microphone and, and ask one question. Um, and that was that was his question. You know, he came after my question. So. Tim, I'm not sure where to leave this. I mean, I feel like uh, in addition to everything that everyone is feeling about this uh, series of atrocities, it has revealed to me that we are just completely exposed. Like we are a country without journalism at a certain kind of basic shoe leather level. Like the next big news event that breaks in Canada, I don't have any assurance that it will be covered directly, immediately, thoroughly. It's a weird feeling. It's a vulnerable feeling. Yeah, another thing happened here, which is that, uh, of course, we have this horrible tragedy with untold heartache and, and pain. And, of course, uh, media outlets from across the world want to come and tell the story. You know, CNN and, and American outlets and British outlets wanted to come here and send their reporters here. But our chief medical officer of health said, 
we have a state of emergency, and if you're going to come to Nova Scotia, you have to be in self-isolation for 14 days before you, you can go out and start talking to people. And um, the international media asked for an exemption on this, as lots of people have exemptions, lots of industries do, and it was declined. Now, I'm probably um, speaking counter to the prevailing attitude here in Nova Scotia, which is we don't need all these reporters uh, being vultures on our on our pain. But we absolutely do need outside perspective. We need more reporters here. We don't have enough. We need people who can challenge local authorities, perhaps in a way that that local reporters might be reluctant to. It's worrying that uh, during a health emergency, uh, we can keep reporters out of the province. I mean, I can see both sides to it. The idea of people, if you're, you're trying to, you know, flatten, squash the curve and, and people come and, and don't observe the quarantine, it is conceivable that they would bring uh, COVID with them and spread it around. But like up is down and down is up. Like to not allow reporters from outside a community into a community is like something that we associate with totalitarian regimes. Uh, like that, that is uh, an essential breakdown of a society, you know, of, of yeah. being accountable to the world, you know, putting up walls and being secretive, not allowing reporters in under any other circumstances. That's that's a pretty easy thing to decry. Yeah. Well, the police have an exemption. So they're they're sending investigators and, and spend doctors undoubtedly across the border as they feel they need to with, without self-isolating. The media are the check on the police. Tim, on this program, Shortcuts, uh, we try to reserve a little bit of space to duly note that which um, might otherwise not get the attention that it deserves. What do you have to duly note for us today? Oh, Jesse, do you know someone named Steve Simmons? He's from your way, big town, Toronto, big city guy, Steve Simmons, a sports reporter, apparently. Oh, with, not, not, not ringing a bell. The sports thing is probably why. <laughs> with Post Media. And uh, in the middle of our heartache and pain here in Nova Scotia, he publishes a piece, uh, Post Media publishes a piece by him. Headline, How Does This Happen in Small Town Nova Scotia? And it starts with him visiting Nova Scotia at some point in the past, I guess. I was walking along a street in small town Nova Scotia, and a car began to slow down beside me. Who you with? A voice called. And it goes on about the accent. And it says, who are you? He says, I'm here with my wife. And the, the man says, you better not beat her, bye. If you beat her, we're coming after you. First of all, no one in mainland Nova Scotia says bye. It's the worst, most insulting depiction of the Maritimes by uh, someone in Toronto who doesn't know the first damn thing about us is trying to portray small-town Nova Scotia as Hicksville. You know, this is in the middle of right when small-town Nova Scotia is facing such devastation. You know, there's there's this view of the Maritimes as being this quaint place that we're just a bunch of ignorant hicks here. I can tell you that the, the people in the area along the Mayans Basin are... First of all, they're quite sophisticated, thank you. They're learned people and artists and... and um, professionals. And I just can't tell you how here we are dealing with this tragedy and some asshole from Toronto tries to score 
political points or or journalistic points or I don't know what the hell it is um, by ridiculing us. Don't stop. Cut it out. We're not like that. Tim, I've uh, I've worn the some asshole from Toronto hat on occasion myself, uh, even with specific reference to uh, to Maritimers. And, you know, sometimes you wonder, why do they hate us here in Toronto so much? And other times I understand why. Duly noted. I want to duly note a follow-up to last week's episode of Shortcuts, in which I talked about how this uh, kind of like wonderful moment of us all just voluntarily agreeing to rewrite the social contract so as to protect ourselves and each other and and find a sense of civic duty and give up uh, all sorts of sacrifices to keep each other healthy is fragile. And that if we kind of just digress into a atmosphere of cops cracking down on us for petty transgressions or incitements to snitch on each other, the whole thing could fall apart. And lo and behold, the city of Toronto tweeted that they have launched an online system where residents can report issues of COVID-19 non-compliance, including individuals not self-isolating. Submit a report here. And then there's a link. I mean, that looks like it's like, here it is, uh, rat out your neighbor if they are not complying with self-isolating. In fact, if you try to use this tool, it's more limited in scope than that. You're supposed to report people who have COVID-19 but are not self-isolating or people who have uh, have come back from abroad and are not self-quarantining, people who have symptoms who are not self-isolating, people who are awaiting test results, people who are really flagrant violators of this. The cops want to know about that. The city wants to know about that. But as presented, you would think it's just a place to, oh, my neighbor got too close to me in line at the grocery store so I, and, and, and also uh, has yet to return that uh, you know power tool that I lent him. So, and, and in fact, when I said to hell with this online, a response from uh, Tasha Carradine, who's a frequent uh, political commentator for CBC and other places, you know, she wrote, well, to the countless people who failed to social distance on our bike ride today, including the jogger who told me to F off when I asked him for space around my kid, this one's for you. Uh, in fact, it's not for you. It's not for any of those things. And uh, I think that in encouraging the public to use it as such, like this will be misinterpreted, this will be used by people and abused by people to settle all sorts of petty grievances and and really encouraging people to uh, tell the city, tell the authorities about how your neighbor's not following the rules is just poisonous to what we're trying to accomplish right now. And uh, I want to heap scorn on them. Yeah, not just that, Jesse. It's going to be used, as everything else is in this society, to attack the most vulnerable. It's going to be used to attack people who have difficulty social distancing for a host of reasons. Uh, they live in apartment buildings. They're, they're fleeing domestic abuse. Uh, people of color are going to be called out more than, than white people. Every way that our society discriminates uh, will be amplified with tools like that. Duly noted. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does 
BetterHelp. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Okay, the last thing I want to talk with you about today, Tim, is the media bailout. This ongoing train wreck of the Trudeau government's newspaper bailout. They snuck in some details uh, this past Friday at like 4.30 p.m. The Department of Finance put out a news release, which is, of course, when you dump information that you want no one to pay attention to. And uh, I want to look at what they changed because uh, they changed some of the rules. And I also want to look at the language. I mean, the first thing that struck me was um, it started with just some boilerplate. Now more than ever, a strong and independent news media is crucial to supporting an informed public in a well-functioning democracy. Okay, reasonable people can disagree on whether or not we should have a news bailout in this country. But there is no argument that the decision, such as it was... I mean, they've, they've made their decision, but such as this controversy goes, it is a decision between maintaining the news media's independence or making it permanently dependent. So you can't still call it the independent news media, right? Like the first casualty is truth. I mean, and that should give you a clue. Yeah. Nothing's free. Free money isn't free. So what is the cost of this subsidy? It is the independence of the news media. So it just is something that they hammer on that phrase. If you like that phrase, independent news media, why not think about what that actually means? Okay, I'll calm down. Here's the actual information, Tim. <laughs> The government released draft legislation proposals. They want to change their own legislation. And what they want to change is they want to open up what it takes to qualify. And as I've said before, this bailout is tailor-made for newspapers. It excludes startups. It excludes video journalism organizations. If your salary comes from making video journalism, you can't get the subsidy. If your salary or your employee's salary is from audio journalism, no subsidy money for those employees. So it was tailor-written for newspapers. Now they've opened it up. Have they opened it up to include those categories? No. They have opened it up to include news organizations that are significantly engaged in the production of promotional content. That used to be excluded. If you were significantly involved in doing like service journalism, uh, you know, what car to buy, then you were excluded. Now you can significantly be publishing promotional stuff and qualify. And it used to be that you had to be primarily engaged in producing original news. Now you don't. You don't have to primarily be engaged in producing original news content. Yeah, you wonder who got to them, huh? 
That's what I wondered. So did you have any ideas? Like, like it's obviously that's for someone's benefit. Who benefits from that? Who does that allow to get the subsidy who previously was excluded? Because it's still excluding all the all the new stuff. Well, it excludes the Halifax Examiner. And let me tell you. It, uh, you know, Canada Land, we made the decision that we're not going for media bailout money, but uh, that's uh, that's a decision made easier for the fact that that uh, we couldn't get it anyhow for anyone except for possibly our news editor because it's written news content. But they've opened it up. Who for? It was pointed out to me. This is obviously for magazines. If you want this money, but you don't primarily produce original news content and you do significantly produce promotional content, promoting goods and services, you are a magazine. So uh, this has been opened up so that glossy magazines, I guess everything from magazines that do some news and current affairs, be it McLean's or The Walrus, but, uh, you know, celebrity magazines, uh, car magazines, whatever's left in Canada's dwindling magazine sector can now qualify for this subsidy. Let me tell you what happened over the last couple of months here here in Halifax. When the COVID emergency came, I decided as as the owner of a small startup, I'm like, okay, we're going to go all out. So I brought in more writers, uh, more reporters. I decided, you know what, whatever it costs money wise, I'm going to uh, max out the company credit card. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use the entire line of credit until um, whatever credit I can cobble together is exhausted. And we're going to put all resources into covering this thing. Um, this is what we're here for. Exactly. This, this is what journalism is for to cover this. So I did that at the very same time, Saltwire, which is the big corporate chain here, announced 40% layoffs, uh, 40% of their staff was laid off. Yeah. And they've been cutting and cutting all along. Uh, and, you know, not to brag too much, but uh, people are, are seeing the Halifax Examiner's coverage. And this was before the mass murder. And we've, we've been on that, too. And they're subscribing at, at record numbers and, and actually donating to the Halifax Examiner so that that day when I thought that we would uh, max out our credit line it has been pushed forward uh, a few weeks, hopefully, um, and we're able to keep up this reporting. But let me tell you, the increase in costs that the Halifax Examiner has bought into is less than the salary of any given CEO at any major Canadian corporate chain. One person. Yeah. One person's salary is more than an entire team of reporters uh, here at the Halifax Examiner. Well, listen, seeing how this thing has been perverted from its original intention, the media bailout, when when the government was saying explicitly, hey, we're not we're here to save journalism. We're not here to bail out business models that don't work anymore. And now seeing how it has systematically been engineered to do exactly that and only that. All it's doing is putting on life support, dead business models. And hearing you say that when Saltwire, it's terrible to see them collapse, but as they collapse, people see the value in what you're doing and what you're able to do on a shoestring budget is the only sign of light and promise in terms of actually getting Canadians journalism. You know, from a moment ago when it was controversial as to whether or not the government should bail out the media, I have lost count of the ways in which the government is bailing out 
the media that they choose to bail out. There are, of course, there's the big one, the salary subsidies. There's the local journalism initiative. There's the digital news subscription rebate. Now they've opened up the Canadian Periodical Fund, which was supposed to be only for magazines. Now it's for newspapers as well. And then they're doing things like they announced with COVID, they're going to be doing these ad buys. And this was an interesting one for me, Tim, because I will not accept media bailout money for Canada Land, but we do accept advertising. I don't want anyone to tell me that that's a subsidy. The government needs to get public health information out. They need media to uh, carry those messages as, as advertisements. But they announced it as if they were doing something kind of charitable for the media. $30 million in ads from the federal government, $10 million here in Ontario from the provincial government. It's really interesting to see the impacts, though, when they construe these media ad buys as some kind of patronage or, or life support for media. Because I've noticed that these Ontario ads for public health messages that people need to hear, they can pick and choose who gets them. So you'll find them in the Toronto Sun, where we reported the Toronto Sun basically teamed up with the Doug Ford campaign. You'll find them on CBC podcasts, but you won't find them on Canada Land, you know, and, and we get over 100,000 downloads a week. I think during COVID, it's up to 140,000 downloads a week. They didn't buy any space on Canada Land. I will never know if that has anything to do with the fact that we have a podcast called Wag the Doug, which is explicitly dedicated to criticizing and scrutinizing and holding the Doug Ford government to account, or if they just don't like us for some other reason. But anybody who's paying attention to this stuff at other media organizations will note that we were shut out and excluded from those advertisements, and we have a very critical position towards the Doug Ford administration. This is the impact of government interference in media. This is the impact of government saying that when they buy ads with the media, that's a form of a subsidy. Nothing is for free. And the people who are saying, oh, the government can interfere and start putting money into media and it'll have no effect on the journalism. We've been documenting the effects for years and most of the money hasn't even arrived yet. Yeah, that's right. As you know, the Halifax Examiner does not take advertising at, at all, partly for that reason. I mean, we're in your face uh, to government. And if government was in that mix, I'm sure we wouldn't get the money just like Canada land isn't. Uh, but uh, I, I'm not sure what the program is doing. I mean, Saltwire supposedly had four positions funded by the bailout money, uh, or the Chronicle Herald did anyway, and they still laid off 40% of their staff. I, it, granted, it's a, a, you know, these are challenging times. I think the entire advertising model has, we're seeing it collapse in front of our eyes. I don't, I'm not sure what publications are going to survive. I don't think it's going to be advertising-based reporting, which is why I've gone just entirely on subscription. But, you know, those are my competitors to some degree, and the government is funding my competitors while we're doing the big increase in reporting yeah. uh, with, with no support. I mean, that's it, is that uh, the bottom line is it won't do what it, what it intended to do, which is to save jobs. They're still laying off people even as they take these subsidies. But what they are doing is, as we say, like when you keep these old organizations on life support, it comes at the expense of, of stuff like what, what you're doing. And, may, and maybe you had the right idea. And, and, you know, like, I wonder if it's just like a much cleaner solution, Tim, and one that's less vulnerable to like the collapse of the ad market, which we're experiencing now, is what you did, which is just say like no ads. 
I think you're in a better position for advertising anyway because you have a, a national and to some extent an international listenership uh, where we're primarily very local, uh, Nova Scotia anyway. So there's not much potential for advertising there anyway. But I'm disinclined to it because I, I want the readers to feel like they're part of a community, a media community, and they, they know us, they know who we are, they know what we're trying to do, and they're willing to put their own money on, on the line because they get it. They get that this kind of operation cannot survive on subscriptions. They get that we can't be taking government money. So, um, in a way, and I think these terrible dual crises we're having, the COVID and the, the mass murder, is bringing people to an understanding that they have to financially support local media. Um, and that that's a, a good thing, I think, um, that's coming out of all this terrible stuff, uh, whether it's the Halifax Examiner or, or Joey Coleman's operation in Hamilton or, or, or what have you. People have got to finance local journalism with their own money. Not a bad place to leave it. And if anyone's listening to this who reads the Halifax Examiner, they uh, they deserve your support. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. You can support us and get ad-free versions of this show by clicking on the link in the episode notes or going to canadalandshow.com slash join. It's five bucks Canadian a month for ad-free podcasts. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send me. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. We have an Instagram account at CanadaLandShow. Tim, where can people find you? HalifaxExaminer.ca Our website is CanadaLandShow.com. The episode of Oppo this week is an interview with the economist Dr. Lindsay Teds, and I have never heard an interview with an economist that was this engaging, uh, this informative. It's just like, it's a fantastic episode of a podcast. I was proud to publish it. Go listen to this episode of Oppo and go listen to our isolation interview with Arshi's mom, Surrender Man. That's also at CanadaLandShow.com. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor was Kevin Sexton. Goodbye, Kevin, and thank you for everything. And our new managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Welcome to the team, Andrea. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. 
but not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.